Hey guys, what's up? It is week two or three. 351? 352? I'm losing track myself. But so we have a slew of movies to review for you. And the first one up is going to be the 4K from Arrow Video of Conan the Barbarian. Now, it had been a long time since I watched Conan. I remember always loving it. Uh, directed by John Milius, who did stuff like Dillinger, which is an excellent movie. He also did Red Dawn. He uh, did a lot of writing on a lot of films. I believe he wrote Extreme Prejudice, if I'm not mistaken, for Walter Hill. But Conan the Barbarian was one of uh, kind of Arnold's big breakthroughs. I mean, he had done Stay Hungry and Hercules in New York. But the one that really kind of put him on the, on the map was 1982's Conan the Barbarian. This is based off a comic book line and some stories. But... Um, John Milius says so himself. He kind of just picked what he wanted and kind of did a mixture. He wasn't like a huge, he wasn't an expert or a huge fan of Conan the Barbarian before he started this movie, but he came a fan. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in here, like I said. Also, James Earl Jones as the villain. Uh, he runs a snake cult, which is pretty epic, pretty awesome. Um, there's some other familiar faces in here, some Arnie regulars, including Sev Thorzen, who is in a bunch of Arnold films. He's in The Running Man. He's in. Um, He's in, of course, Predator, and, geez, he's in the sequel, Conan the Destroyer. But, uh, yeah, uh, basically the plot of Conan is his entire family is wiped out when he is a young boy. He is taken, he is put into kind of slavery, sold. He becomes a pit fighter where he learns how to fight. He learns kind of this theory. Um, he basically stumbles across uh, this kind of thing when he's set free, and he starts to worship things, and he ends up becoming a thief kind of deal. But his main goal eventually is to take out the snake cult. He ends up running into a king. Um, they're captured by a king, him and his, his compatriots, his partners in, in the thievery, uh, Max von Sydow. And he basically tells him, if, if you save my daughter from this snake cult, all my riches are yours. So it, it's excellent. Max von Sydow is great in here. James Earl Jones is great in here. Arnold's perfect for the role. I'm a big Arnold Schwarzenegger fan. He looks great as Conan the Barbarian. Um, and also, geez, I feel like I'm forgetting someone. William Smith plays his father in the very beginning. Excellent actor. Uh, one of the first bodybuilders. So it's great that he's the father of Conan the Barbarian. Father of Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie. Um, the score is done by Basil Papandors, our Parandors, who did Robocop and some others. The score is excellent. It's, it's this big... Uh, epic score and it fits the movie perfectly it's got this sprawling score the film looks great it's produced by dino de laurentis and i believe it was shot what and was it shot in spain if i'm not mistaken i think some of them were at least the sequel was so the thing about conan is it's probably the best of what this subgenre has to offer after the early 80s there was always kind of fantasy stuff but there was a slew of ones like sword and the sorcerer um Fulci's conquest there was a lot of these kind of um Sword and Sandal, or Sword and Sorcery movies, if you will, including Sorcerer by uh, Jack Hill and uh, Jim Wynorski, which is not a great film. But so, they were almost so much more subpar than Conan the Barbarian. Um, Conquest is pretty good. There's some good ones in there. They just never had the levels. I know there's some bigger films that probably, Dragon Slayer, that people find much better and everything like that. But, but looking at uh, Conan the Barbarian, I, I just am just amazed at the poetry in the dialogue. Um... The, the basically, I don't know how you make um, this kind of time period poetic. 
but they sure do it here with the dialogue and the the music and the imagery there's a lot of beautiful imagery it's just a well shot film too excellently excellently shot um and for the most part really well acted and the score is perfect and the violence there's a tremendous amount of violence in this film um carnage that you really don't see in that many movies of this caliber um heads being chopped off uh lots of blood spray when people get chopped up and and it's edited well too it feels like real combat it doesn't linger on the shots but it doesn't shy away from the violence either um i always liked how milia shot violence um in particular dillinger um there's a lot of bystanders that get hurt in that movie and it, it just makes the violence hit more impactful um dillinger's and i love that movie i, I I'm, I'm due for a rewatch but uh conan the barbarian looks excellent in 4k it sounds excellent. You got a Dolby Atmos uh, surround sound mix. So the the release itself is is great. Um, and on top of the movie being great, and it was it was a pleasure to revisit Conan the Barbarian. As far as the features are concerned, there is a slew of them. So the the first disc is on its own disc at the 4K. Just the movie, maybe some commentaries. That's it. And then the second disc has all the bonus features on there. It's a Blu-ray. So basically, what we have here is three cuts of the movie. We have the theatrical, the international, and the extended cut. Now, the extended cut is the longest cut, and that's where a lot of the kind of um, stuff like um, the, the commentaries are on and everything like that. But if we're going to go to the extras, what we have here is Conan Unchained, the making of Conan, an archival documentary from 2000 featuring interviews with Schwarzenegger, Milius, Stone, Jones, Lopez, Bergman, uh, Paul and Doris, and several others. Designing Conan, a newly filmed interview with production artist William Stout, who basically tells everyone that the second one's script was garbage. Pretty funny. Costuming Conan, a newly filmed interview with costume designer John Bluefield. Barbaric Effects, a newly filmed interview with special effects crews members Colin Arthur and Rob Hone. Young Conan, a newly filmed interview with actor Jorge Sanz. Conan and the Priest, a newly filmed interview with actor Jack Taylor. Yes, Jack Taylor is in here in a small cameo. Very fun. Cutting the Barbarian, a newly filmed interview with assistant editor Peck Pryor. Crafting Conan's Magic, a newly filmed interview with visual effects crew members Peter Kurgan and Kathleen Keane. Barbarians and Northmen, a newly filmed interview with filmmaker Robert Eggers on the film's influence on the Northmen. So, that's pretty cool too. All these are new and they're all pretty good. Behind the Barbarian, newly filmed interview with John Walsh, author of Conan the Barbarian, the official history of the film. A Line in the Sand, newly film interview with Alfido Leota, author of The Cinema of John Milius, Conan the Rise and Fantasy Legend, an archival featurette on the film's literary and comic book roots, Art of Steel, Swordmakers and Masters, an archive interview with Swordmaster uh, Kiyoshi Yamasaki, uh, Conan from the Vault, an archive compilation of on-set cast and crew interviews, a tribute to Basil Polandoris, a series of videos produced by Umbella Film Musical Festival, including video of Polandoris conducting a concert of music from the film in 2006, remixed in 5.1 surround and interviews collaborators such as Paul Verhoeven and Randall Kleiser. Rarely seen electronic press kit from 82 featuring over a half an hour of on-set footage and cast crew interviews, uh, outtakes including a deleted cameo by Milius, split-screen Volterra battle spirits, visual effects comparison, Conan the Archives, a gallery of photos and production images from 2000, Conan the Barbarian, the musical, an affectionate comic tribute to the film by John and Al Kaplan, U.S. international teaser and theatrical trailers, image gallery. Dude, there's so much stuff on this. Three cuts in the movie. It looks spectacular. I would highly recommend. It's very glossy here. Picking up Conan the Barbarian on 4K. There is a two set where it has both of them in there. But uh, this is the true bread of the the, the the better film, of course. But if you're a Conan uh, completist, then check them both out. They come in a set or single. But Conan the Barbarian, great stuff. Okay, now we're going to move on to the sequel here. 
Conan the Destroyer. Now, this is directed by, I, I don't want to be rude and say journeyman director Richard Fleischer because he directed a lot of excellent movies, but he was kind of a, a studio guy. He did tons and tons of films, so it obviously didn't work out with Milius and Dino De Laurentiis. They kind of talk about that in the special features of both movies. Um, so they kind of went on. There was a planned trilogy, of course, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the um, basically moving on forward, and then the, there was going to be Conan the Conqueror as the final film, as both these movies kind of leave off that, that there will be a sequel. Only one of them told the truth. So basically what we have here is it's almost like new characters. There is one character besides Conan that returns and it, it brings in just new kind of characters within. It's kind of strange. It doesn't really leave off for the last one. It's kind of its own thing. Now this one was PG-13. The original is definitely a hard R. There's a lot of gore. There's a lot more violence. There's just more poetry in everything. And the dialogue is vastly superior in the original. For some reason, the dialogue in this film seems very clunky, very bizarre. This feels very kid-friendly. Tracy Walter is in here as kind of a silly goon, kind of his silly kind of, like, I guess, sidekick to Arnold. Tracy Walter's a great actor. He's in The Hunter, Batman, Young Guns 2, um, At Close Range. Just a great character actor. He's very funny in this, and as they point out in the commentary, Kim Newman and Alan Jones do... Um, they point out that he's doing a Peter Laurie impression. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty funny. Um, Sarah Douglas is in this from stuff like Return of the Dead Part 3 and the Superman films. So it has a nice little cast. Wilt Chamberlain is in here, and his goal is to protect a virgin from being killed, from being like attacked. And that's very funny, protect her virginity. If anybody knows that he supposedly slept with like 10,000 women. So that's just a little nice touch and goofiness there. So um, yeah, this one, it has more, I guess, I wouldn't even say monsters in here. It really is just kind of a, a, a like a childish version of the first one. The end special effects are really good. Um, they're very fun. Giannotti De Rossi, I think, took hand in those. So there is a cool monster at the very end. So Conan is basically supposed to transport this girl, this virginal girl, somewhere and help her so she doesn't have it. She keeps her virginity intact. But of course, Sarah Douglas is the one who sends her on the mission. She's got something up her sleeve. She promises to bring back Conan's lost love. Yeah, that's kind of the plot. It's kind of a ragtag group of people on a, a sword and fantasy mission um they run into like the house of mirrors which i actually do remember the comic of that if they, I, I believe it was this is more close to the comics and the stories and everything like that i used to collect conan comics and a lot of the times i'd buy the comics just because i love the cover art and i would keep them all the time i'd buy a comic a day for years or, or like every time i went to the comic shop every week i'd buy a comic book and a lot of times i bought the conan comics because they look so freaking cool so I, I collected comics for years and a lot of times i never even read them i just collected them and the cover art and i remember the house of mirrors kind of was in the storyline here. Um, and that's kind of a fun thing, although the creature doesn't look exactly great. Overall, I think Conan the Destroyer is vastly inferior to the original. And I think it's because they tried to aim at a broader audience, more family-friendly. But in truth be told, I think that the violence and the filmmaking and the writing and everything in the original is better. And I think that's what drew people in. So when you watch Conan the Destroyer, it just seems like it's it's pulling its punches. No one's acting normal. Everybody's strange. It's kind of like something like Adventures of Buckaroo Bonanzai, where they just throw you in the film and you're supposed to know exactly what's going on. And that, that works sometimes in films. And it would work with a Conan movie because it's based on a comic. But having the first one to go off of, it really just becomes confusing and a little kind of irritating. So overall, the movie looks spectacular. It sounds spectacular. It's in 4K. It's got Dolby Atmos. But the film itself is just such a letdown to Conan the Barbarian. If I ever watch this again, it will be on its own um, without it. 
Will Chamberlain, not an actor, obviously. A lot of the people in here don't give their best performances. They're not horrible performances. Um, Arnold is okay in it. I think he's much better in the first one. I think the first one needed that serious touch. This one's just a little too goofy, and, and it's kind of a silly story anyways in a lot of ways so it doesn't it just it's it, i guess it just really doesn't land for me as far as the special features are concerned we have um where are we archival audio commentary by director Rutha fleischer audio uh, archive commentary by actors olivia del albo and tracy walter archival feature um archive feature commentary by sarah douglas with genre historians kim newman and stephen jones it's not stephen jones sorry not alan jones brand new feature commentary by genre historian paul m salmon author of conan the phenomenon newly assembled isolated score in the lost stereo casting the Dr destroyer the newly filmed interview with casting director john johanna ray cut from a different cloth a newly filmed interview with costume designer john bluefield dune and destroyer a newly filmed interview with art director kevin phillips our feeps uh sword sorcery and stunts a newly filmed interview with stunt coordinator vic armstrong behind the destroyer newly filmed interview with john walsh author of conan the barbarian the official history of the, co the film conan the making of comic book legend archival interview with writers ray thomas and jerry conway uh basil pop uh Doris, composing the conan saga an archival interview with the composer trailers image gallery double-sided folder all that kind of stuff so it, it's a really nice release of a movie i don't love but I, if you're a fan of it i would recommend it if you want to check it out in 4k then it looks great and sounds great i mean it has a lot of cool stuff going on here. Of course, Grace Jones is in here being really crazy and intimidating and kind of fun. That was like a, a time, you know, she would go on to be in Vamp in 86. And it's just crazy, 84, Grace Jones. And, and just it's just such a product of its time, too. But, uh, yeah, it, it's worth looking at. But um, just don't hold it up to the first one if you can help it. It's very hard. But, it, it, it you know, it is what it is. It's just an inferior film to the first one. Okay, the next one here is from MVD Rewind Collection, and this is one of their 4Ks here, and this is Cutting Class from 88, 89, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, and this, of course, is infamous for starring Brad Pitt. Sometimes it's credited as his first film role. I'm not 100% sure. It's his first bigger role, I would say. I know he was in television before. It also stars Jill Sholin. Jill Sholin was in Stepfather and Popcorn and a couple other horror films. Kind of get a re good reputation among horror fans. This one is a bizarre film. Also has Martin Mole, Roddy McDowell. So a nice cast in here um it, it's late in the cycle of slasher films and it's more of a comedy first it's definitely a satirical or comedy or definitely parroting it to a certain extent but what we have here is kind of this bad boy that kind of lost his mind and he was sent to an institution i believe he killed somebody he used to be best friends with brad pitt they both kind of are fighting over jill sholin and what happens is he comes back to town um, back to the school and brad pitt wants nothing to do with him and you're kind of trying to figure out is the killer brad pitt is the killer um uh, this new guy, what's the actor's name? I'm sorry about that. Uh, Donovan Leach, a lech. And I, he's very familiar. He's not as big, obviously, as Brad Pitt. But so what happens is there's kind of a lot of this back and forth. You never really see it. It's a whodunit for sure. Martin Mole is Jill Sholin's father, and he gets hurt right in the very beginning of the movie. And he's kind of, they play this gag throughout the entire film. He's trying to get back home, and it, it's it's played for laughs. It's a bit silly. Um, all the, the faculty in here, the teachers in, uh, of the school, are it takes place predominantly in a school, are just really perverted like there's times when like jill sholin will bend over and roddy mcdowell's like <gasps> like trying to get her to bend over i mean i love roddy mcdowell he's in a slew of classic films including a lot of the planet of the apes movies fright night uh the poseidon adventure just in tons of movies he actually directed a movie called tamlin from 1970 which is an interesting movie with ian mcshane but you know so he's just a kind of a shakma of course he is an icon um and it's nice seeing him in here it's pretty late for him the late 80s um but overall cutting class is is really zany and bizarre 
bizarre. I, I wouldn't say that the acting is amazing, but it's not poor. I think that the actors kind of knew they were in a bizarre little film. Now, Martin Mole is good. Roddy McDowell's always good. Brad Pitt's okay. You know, I mean, like, he's not, it's not the Brad Pitt that we all know, who's just like this big kind of movie star. But overall, Cutting Class is just kind of a semi-decent film. I mean, it's better than its reputation. A lot of people really hate it, but I could see a lot of people loving it, too, just because of the zaniness and weirdness. Um, it looks great in 4K. The sound mix is just like, it's very, tip is it a 2.1? I can't remember the sound mix. is as LPCM mono. Um, there's HDR, of course, and it looks really good, but the sound it was okay. It wasn't great. It was solid. Um, as far as the Blu-ray, this the 4K is in here, and it has the film on there, but the Blu-ray has some special features on here. It has interviewed Jim Schollen, Jill Schollen, that's 20 minutes, and she's pretty upfront with the movie. She's like, I don't love the movie. I don't think it's great. I love that people love it, but hey, you know, it is what it is, and she seems genuinely nice, genuinely straightforward, just honest good person um then we have an interview with donovan lech and he's he's pretty candid too 16 minutes talks about working with brad pitt first day on the set that's good stuff kill comparisons r-rated edited versions and then we have the uh cutting class 91 minute version find the killer and win vhs video store retail or promo that thing's sound is blown out to hell but it reminds me definitely of these kind of remember the little monsters hotline that you'd call it's definitely one of these deals right late 80s always had the hotlines the freddy krueger hotline it's 100 percent that kind of deal right um over Overall, um, I enjoyed watching uh, Cutting Class. It had been years since I watched it. Um, I guess you can retire that old DVD. I know that Vinegar Syndrome had this out on Blu-ray with like five slipcovers, but uh, they didn't have it in 4K. Um, so we got Cutting Class in 4K. If it's up your alley, check it out. Um, the director, this is like I think his first directorial debut, and I think he wrote a bunch of stuff like Deliverance. So that's pretty crazy to think that the guy who wrote Deliverance directed Cutting Class, which has some weird shit going on. The kills aren't amazingly gory or grotesque but they are fun somebody gets put in a kiln stuff like that um yeah cutting class worth a look um all the characters are weird and bizarre it definitely is a high school horror comedy but yeah check it out Okay, the next one here is from MVD, and this was my favorite movie that I watched for 2023. I didn't watch that many horror films, but I really dug this. This is Candyland. I talked about it a little bit, but this is the Blu-ray. Um, as far as the features are concerned, we just have a filmmaker commentary that cuts out after like 40 minutes. I kind of skimmed through it. I didn't hear the director talking anymore. We have like this kind of digital zine, uh, which is a bunch of pictures. But essentially, this movie takes place in 1996, and it it's a truck stop, right, around Christmas time. Um, and it follows this group of truck stop prostitutes, one of which who's played by, um, geez, he's, he's in a bunch of stuff. My heart will, will only beat if you tell it to in super dark times. Owen Campbell. He's a really good actor. I've, I've really been paying attention to what he's been doing. He's been great. Um, it also has William Baldwin in it as a police officer who has a thing for, you know, Owen Campbell, who's a gay prostitute. And then it has Josh Brolin's daughter. She's really solid in it. And a, a slew of other girls. And they're all good. I, I should probably take to memorizing some of the actresses name in here, but I really like the core group of characters here. So we're full of five or six kind of sex workers. And what happens is there be, appears to be a killer at this truck stop. At first they find a dead trucker with a cross in his hand. And uh, all, all kind of signs point to this group of really religious uh, fanatics that are in the area. And this young girl, the younger girl, who is kind of left behind. She seems very sheltered. She's kind of wearing the traditional like uh, kind of cultish clothes. And at first they're kind of like making fun of this cult, but they feel bad for her. So they start to help her out. She starts to get involved with the sex acts. It's not really a mystery who the killer is after a while, after about 10, 15, 20 minutes into the film. But I guess I won't spoil it for this. But what happens is, of course... 
people start getting picked off. They start getting killed. There is a brutal rape scene, of course. And this movie feels genuinely like it's kind of an exploitation movie from the 70s to me. It feels like it's not really pulling its punches or even very the very least, maybe something from like 2010 that just had gore and violence and, and pushed the buttons of people. And I think that the acting and the filmmaking is strong enough to put this over a lot of the movies that um, are in its vein, right? Like a lot of the ones from the early 2010s or teens or whatever you want to call it, right? But I think that the acting's solid. I liked all the characters and they have a good needle drops in here that work. Like Don't Dream It's Over, Crowded House. They use that in the stand, of course. It was McGarris's idea. They used that perfectly at the end. They obviously thought so, whoever did the DVD, because they put it on the DVD menu, which is cool. But uh, no, this one is just dark. It's bleak. There's a lot of murder. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of creepy characters throughout the entire film. There's a speech that William Baldwin gets and you wow me every time. I, lo I love that. I think he does a good job in here. And you know, William Baldwin um, was one of the Baldwin brothers I was least familiar with. Of course, Alex and everything. And Steven was in Posse, of course, uh, Crazy Jay. And and Daniel popped up in a, a handful of stuff too, Vampires and Trees Lounge. So I, I think William Baldwin was in Backdraft, but he was in Curdled. But I, I just feel like I've seen a lot less of William Baldwin, especially in later years. But he's good in this. He's good in this. Owen Campbell seals the show. And the lead, she's excellent in this. The religious girl is very good. Overall, it's well acted. There's plenty of sex and plenty of nudity, although a lot of it is unpleasant. But uh, Candyland, I would really recommend checking this out. Sounds good. Looks good. Um, great movie. Uh, I don't know. That case is, is it, it does a pretty good job of it. But uh, anyways, I would recommend checking this out if you like exploitation movies. This one kind of... Uh, you know, it feels like a legitimate one, I think, at least. At the very least, it's trying to do something that a lot of people don't do anymore, unless they're doing it on a $10 budget. And this has, has uh, some money behind it and a good cast and uh, just good filmmaking. So Candyland, check it out. All right, we're going to hop into those 1981 movies. Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway, evil will invade the world.
Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. In this little town, when the 14th comes round, there's a silence and fear in the air. Remember the morn that the legend was born, all the shock and the horror was there. Oh, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. And no one will know as the years come and go of the horror from long time ago. Okay, we're going to do this set first. We're going to take breaks in between. And this is a, a, a TV show. Basically, hour, hour and 30 minutes is the longest. Six episodes. Um, they are all feature length, technically. So we're going to count them as features. The Devil's Game from Italy, made in 1981. It is a TV kind of series here. It has, obviously, six different directors. And it's infamous for this as being Mario Bava's last film. Now, I think a lot of these were shot in 78, 79, and not released till 81. So that's what we're looking at here. So we're going to do The Sandman, which is the first episode. These are all based on classic literature. Um, I will mention who it is if I remember. Um, but the first one is The Sandman. But this is directed by Giuliano Quetzi, Quetzi who did Death uh, Occurred at Midnight or Death Laid an Egg, uh, the one with uh, uh, John Louis... Uh, uh, Ringyon. Um, so he's in there or Trinion. Um, so, so you see what I mean? Like he, he's in that film. So this director here is probably the second biggest director in the series. So the Sandman, a lot of these are all period pieces. A lot of them have, you know, kind of the structure where somebody's telling the story and then we have flashbacks and they'll pop in the narration. Not all of them though. So this one follows the story of a young man who is obsessed with poetry. And he has this long history of his family having some mental illness, or basically the father was murdered in strange circumstances by this person that he, I don't remember the character's name, um, and he is obsessed with finding a Coppola, I believe. Um, and he is obsessed, or Coppolinus, or something like that, but he, uh, he's obsessed with figuring out what happened. So he starts to go to school, and this old man ends up coming, showing up to him, and he thinks that this is the man who killed his father, and he becomes incredibly obsessed with it. Um, and he eventually kind of plays his game a little bit. He's trying to sell him something, and he buys this kind of little telescope thing. And what happens is he spots this woman across the, the in the next building, and she seems very, very um, stationary, very beautiful, very, very intriguing to him. So he starts to focus on her. He ends up finding out that she sings opera, and he tries to get enlisted in a, a class that this teacher is kind of has over her, you know, kind of helping her, She's basically a protege kind of deal. But there's something off with her. There's something off with the situation. The assistant teacher is actually this Coppola guy who be he believes killed his father. So he di deep dives. He ends up becoming infatuated with this woman, and there's a, a there's a twist at the end which I think is really cool. It's a really dark ending. Um, I mean, it, you know what's going on, but just watching everyone else watch him do what he's doing is interesting. These are all TV movies. Some of them were shot on film, but all of them are tape masters basically, or they were shot on tape. Except um, Mario Bava's, the film elements were found, of course. But the Sandman, it's all good. It, it's a solid one. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, basically, a story about mental illness and badness and um, insanity. I liked it. Good stuff. 
Okay, the next one is kind of the crowned achievement of the, the set here. It is uh, Venus of Ill, and this is Mario Bava's, of course, the last thing he directed, co-directed by his son, Lumberto Bava. So what we have here is this kind of um, character who's, they in the very beginning, they're digging in the yard, and this guy is basically a historian. He's an art, uh, he collects ancient kind of like things. He's, he's basically a museum curator, I would say, in a way, back in the, in the period of time. And he, they dig this this kind of bronze statue out of the ground. I believe it's bronze, and it's just beautiful woman Venus. And uh, they pull her out. And at the very very beginning, it's a bad omen because this statue falls on someone and cripples them. And they're very good at this sport. Not anymore, obviously. Um, he becomes infatuated with this. He puts it in the garden, and somebody hears about it. And they're supposed to come there and look at the art and everything like that. And this has become kind of like the showpiece, the center of it. So he shows up, and um, he meets the um, the guy and his son, who's pretty pretty soon going to get married to this woman uh, who is Daria Nicolodi, which is great. She's beautiful in this. And he realizes that the son is a buffoon. He is a womanizer. And, and this guy is not really a fan of him. Uh, and as Tim Lucas says in the story, he mentions that in the kind of the narration. But as it goes on, there's just something wrong with the statue. In the very beginning, it was a bad omen. It reminds me of Angel for Satan, the Mar Barbara Steele movie, um, which is really good. Severn put that out as well. But you know, kind of have this idea that this item, that this statue, that this this piece of history has something else to it. And that's kind of where we go here. It is subtle. It is a very subtle. All these are very subtle, kind of slow moving. They're not going to be for everybody. But what happens is uh, he ends up playing around and putting the wedding ring on this bronze figure when he gets drunk on his wedding and uh, tragedy ensues. Um, this one's good. It's interesting. I like it. I love the very ending, of course, um, w involving a bell. Um, but overall, this is the best of the, the bunch of them. There is a Tim Lucas interview, uh, commentary, commentary on here for this. And we also have Venus in Love interview with uh, Laverna Dell, screenwriter, co-director, Lamberto Bava, which is also nice. Nemo Profita and proceed interview with Laverna Adel, uh, cinematographer Nino Celeste. So that's great, too. I think all of them are, are kind of focused on this, of course, this Bava short. Um, um, so, yeah, this one is the best of the six, but they're all pretty good. Okay, the next one is The Perfect Presence, and this stars William Berger, who is in a slew of horror films. He was just in Spider Labyrinth that I talked about. He's in a lot of spaghetti westerns. He's in one of the Django films, um, kind of plays Django's, like, kind of like friend, arch nemesis deal. Regardless, um, this is uh, the the possessed presence or the deadly presence. Well, i, I got to make sure. The perfect presence. Sorry about that. And what we have here is... This older writer, he becomes, uh, he, he kind of meets this young woman who's beautiful and gorgeous and her mother. And he becomes kind of intrigued by the whole situation. Him and his friend are visiting and he falls in love with this uh, young girl. And she may have feelings for him, um, but soon enough, um, they're in church and he's hanging around and he's courting her. He's much older than her. Um, and he sees a strange man walk in who's staring at him. He looks like an angry man. And... As it goes on, the mother is saying something about this guy is a presence and that she did something wrong to him. And he appears to be a ghost, a presence, if you will. And it goes on and on and on. And, of course, the ending is really kind of what I took away from this. And William Berger has some really great lines here about, you know, there's so many men in the world that go about life not knowing they're dead. But I worry that, um, that I'm one of those who thinks they're alive but isn't. 
and that I've married, and my, that my wife has married a ghost. And you're just like, that whole speech, it just kind of brought this one together, this whole idea. Um, this one is interesting, and it's good, um, but overall, I mean, there's not that much to talk about with it, but I, I have no complaints overall. William Berger is solid in this one, and essentially... Um, I think that what really pushes this is the ending, looking in the mirror and just kind of talking about the situation and contemplating everything. And, and I guess what you want, maybe it's not everything it's cracked up to be all these kind of things like that in a way, or, or not necessarily that, or the idea that once you feel like you've gotten rid of something, maybe there's always going to be that feeling that maybe you didn't, or maybe you paid something for it. You didn't know, but that is the perfect presence. Okay, the next one here is The Possessed Hand. Um, and this one kind of has a strange structure here. So we have this kind of guy in more modern times. He's in a bar and he's doing this kind of parlor trick for all the people. And, and he does this hand thing where he brings the hand, this dead severed hand. And everybody's like, oh, what is that? And he starts, it starts to move on its own. And everybody thinks it's a trick. And he, they kind of talk to him. And he's like, well, pay me more and I'll tell you how I got this hand. And he kind of goes back to this old story of uh, this his, his, um, his grandfather or his great-great-grandfather performing this on stage and reading palms and doing all these things like that. And uh, this guy, he does a, a palm reading, basically. And he tells this guy, listen. And he tells him the past, future, present. And when he gets to the future, he tells him, I see you going to be very high. And he's like, oh, of course. What, the mayor? He's like, no, you're going to be on the gallows. Because this guy started kind of giving him a hard time. And it turns out he goes home and his his wife has invited their, like, shirt tail cousin, his cousin, her cousin, to the house. And it's cousin by marriage or something like that. And this guy is an asshole. He's loud. He's won a bunch of duels. He's very dangerous. So this guy is very fed up with him. They obviously butt heads. And he gets challenged to a duel by his cousin. But he goes to this man who knows magic, of course. This, this guy's great-great-grandfather. And he asks for his help. But what happens is we have kind of a, a classic story where, you know, your hand is not your own appendage anymore. It has a mind of its own. And that's kind of really what happens here. And it gets him into a lot of fucking trouble. And eventually, you know... What our guy predicted is kind of the thing. It's very much t kind of what happens. It's kind of very Tales from the Crypt-esque, um, just desserts, early kind of storyline, right? Your hand's possessed, a hand's at Orlock. There's so many of these movies that have that, right? Mad Love, where your hands aren't exactly what they say they are, or, or body parts, or all these movies, right? Um, but this one's good. It's decent. It is the uh, possessed hand, or the possessed, what is it? I keep doing that. The uh, possessed hand. Yeah, I got that right this time, finally. My brain's kind of working, right? But yeah, good stuff. Okay, the next one is called The Bottle Imp, and this is by the longest one. And this is actually by uh, Robert Louis Stevens, I believe, who wrote the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story, which is a great story. I believe that's him. So essentially what we have here is this man who's born in Hawaii, and he's a sailor. And what he does is he, he kind of stumbles across this old man talking about this bottle. And he talks to him about it, and the old man says, Listen, um, this bottle has given me everything. And I have to pay the ultimate price. When I die, I'm into internal damnation. This bottle is basically a deal with the devil. Um, this young man doesn't believe it at first, but he, he takes him some convincing. And when he does believe it, he buys the bottle for $50. But there's a rule. If you die with the bottle in your possession, you are damned to an eternity of hellfire. But if you sell the bottle for cheaper than you bought it to someone else and explain the circumstances, you're scot-free. So what happens is he ends up using the bottle once saying that he wants a better house and something tragic happens. He gets rid of the bottle. And what happens is um, he finds the woman he loves and he feels bad about using the bottle in the first place. And he ends up developing a horrible disease, leprosy, and he needs that bottle. So he goes looking for it and he finds it. And uh, what it's sold for is much cheaper. And if he buys this bottle, it's going to be much harder to get rid of it. 
So he has to make a determination fest to figure some stuff out. It's a good story. It's an interesting story. Um, it is a bit long, I would say. You could probably condense this, but his wife ends up helping him, and it gets complicated, and you're really kind of worried. Um, and there's a character in that towards the end that kind of just makes proves a point right at the end. He says, "Well, hey, you know, who cares what happens? You know, this is silly, and I don't believe it, but at the same time, I'm gonna end up there anyways." But uh, good, good story, interesting story, a little long, like I said, but still good. Um, I enjoy it. It is the Bottle Imp. Okay, the final story here is The Dream of Another, and this story is actually written by H.G. Wells, who I love. H.G. Wells is one of the best sci-fi horror writers of all time, The Invisible Man, The Time Machine, War of the Worlds, Food of the Gods. I mean, the guy's list of uh, stories are, are long, very long, and they're all great. Um, this one I actually not known, The Dream of Another, and this is a good one. And this predates, I imagine, a lot of films that kind of took from this. So what we have here, and I'm going to spoil this because I'd like to talk about the subject matter a bit. What we have here is a young man, and the structure is strange. Again, we have H.G. Uh, Wells in the actual story telling the story. This is what happened, yada, yada, yada. But uh, that happens a lot, too. Like, the writer will actually be a character within the storytelling. It, it's cool. but So he's essentially... This young man, he he starts to see this older man around. This old man approaches him and says, "Listen, I am rich. I am intelligent. I am a famous philosopher, and I have no heir. Hair. I would like you to be my hair. I've been watching you. You seem strong. You seem healthy. You seem like you have a good head on your shoulders." So they start to discuss it. He starts to take him under his wing. He says, "You need to change your name, though, because I need this name to move on." He buys him a bunch of suits, and then one night they decide to have this kind of. He gives him a drink, and he starts to trip out and. And he wakes up and he's not who he used to be. And uh, that's a really, really scary thing. It's really well done. There's a, a staircase outside that's kind of the centerpiece of this story that works really well, um, especially in the kind of hallucinatory scenes when he's kind of losing his mind. But uh, the overall thing is something kind of in the vein of Brotherhood of Satan or the Suspiria remake or, of course, Get Out, right? That body switching, that body snatching, the young forever kind of story, right? That old sucking the life out of the, the young deal. Um, it's also night of death from 1980 a little different in that one you know it's kind of like old people feeding on the young to live forever society but this one is a body sw switching story and the way it's done is really good um and thinking hg wells maybe he's the first one that wrote something like this in this kind of deal um but it, it's it, like i said it's really well done it's creepy uh and the way it ends i liked it as well so i would really recommend uh the dream of another i think this is probably the second best of the 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 six uh, the bavas is the best just because it's well made and the characters are good and everything but they're all good they're all solid they are a little subtle they are a little you know light I would say on the horror, but I would still call them horror because they're classic horror stories. And I think that we've lost that in a lot of movies. I think people just assume that if it's not a gory, violent monster movie or slasher or just something completely off the rails, violent, it's not a horror movie. People will be like, well, I don't know if that's a horror movie. It's like, what are we doing here? This is a classic ghost story. This is the the, the early days of horror. I know every decade horror, horror's definition changes, right? If we were doing the 50s, we'd count a lot more sci-fi movies as horror and, and whatnot, right? In the 70s, maybe some rape-revenge movies would lean into that horror category more, like I Spin on Your Grave. But, but you know, the these the kind of roots of horror are here, and they're in these stories, and I think these are horror films, and, and very, some of them gothic, of course, too, but it's a nice set. I'm glad I watched all of them. Only one of them's remastered, but the rest uh, are from either video 
or um, basically, uh, or, or they were shot on film but edited on tape, or, or they're just shot on tape. So only one of them looks really good. The rest are, are they look presentable, except a couple of them. There's some of the static and everything like that. But The Devil's Game, um, not many people talking about this. I would recommend it. I mean, it's a, it's a cool set to have, and it's nice to see some television movies from Italy from 1981. Okay, next here is a thriller from 81. I decided to watch it. I, I It's always on, like, the Tear in the Isles, uh, like, or one of those Tear Horror Tape compilations. So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to watch it. I've never seen it. Had it for years. This is Nighthawks, uh, starring Sylvester Stallone, Roger Howard, Billy D. Williams, Joe Spinell, baby. Gotta love Joey, Joe Spinell in here. I feel like there's probably somebody else I'm missing in here. Nigel Davenport. I think I got them all for the most part. Uh, Keith Emerson does the music. Who did Inferno? Uh, of course, by Dario. So anyways, Nighthawks. This is a uh, very 80s, very kind of gritty city kind of stuff here. Rugger Howard is an international terrorist and he blows things up. He is basically uh, uh, kind of hired, but he has, he believes in all this stuff too. Uh, Sylvester Stallone and Billy D. Williams are both, uh, I think, Vietnam vets and they're police officers that do the beat. They do a lot of sting operations where they, you know, they pull a Charles Bronson, Paul Kersey, where they're walking down the street with groceries. Somebody tries to rob them. They beat the shit out of them and arrest them. Boom. Joe Spinell is his commanding officer and Joe Spinell's great in here. Stallone and Spinell had a long relationship. Um, I believe very close. Uh, he's in a lot of his films. Spinell's just one of the best character actors of all time. Uh, and so basically what happens is uh, Rugger Howard's doing some really crazy, awful shit. Uh, basically they start to get onto him and he changes his identity, kills some cops, and they're basically in the city and they got to stop him before it's too late. It's it's definitely an action thriller. I wouldn't call it horror. Uh, Rugger Howard's performance is pretty impressive, pretty intense, I would say. Stallone is solid. Billy D. Williams is solid. Overall, it's a really well done action kind of thriller. I don't have many complaints about it. Like I said, Spinell's great in here. Uh, it's violent, as you would want. It reminds me a bit of, what is it, Black Sunday, um, the one with Bruce Dern. It also reminds me of, I can't think of the one I just recently watched with Rugger Howard, where um, I think it's Wanted Dead or Alive, where Gene Simmons is the bad guy. This time, uh, Rugger Howard is the good guy, and he's trying to stop Gene Simmons from blowing shit up. So it's kind of weird how they switch roles, right? Rugger Howard was once the terrorist blowing shit up. Now he's the hero trying to stop guys from blowing shit up. But overall, uh, I would recommend checking this out Nighthawks if you like these action thrillers it was a Stallone I'd never seen um, I'm glad to finally have seen it I'm glad to remedy that as far as the in- features are we have new interviews with producer Herb Nanez writer Paul Salbert director of photography James L. Conter actors Lindsay Wagner and, and Catherine Mary Stewart and police consultant Randy Jurgensen. it does look like Randy Jurgensen touched this movie because he worked on Maniac he worked on Cruisin worked on a bunch of movies this is definitely something he would have worked on and probably gritty New York City stuff here Nighthawks good movie all right, we're going to get in the Patreon pick here, and this is, I can't remember who picked it, but I'm glad they did, and this is uh, Pulp Fiction from 1994, directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring John Travolta, Samuel Jackson, um, Uma Thurman, Bruce Willis, Ving Rhames, Paul Calderon, Tim Roth, Amanda Plummer, oh, Eric Stoltz, who else is in this, Peter Green, Dwayne Whitaker, do I, can I, do I, do I just keep going, right, uh, uh, Alexis Arquette, Frank uh, Whaley, Phil Lamar, um, Quentin Tarantino himself, Harvey Keitel. The cast is pretty fucking impressive in this movie. Here, let's see if I missed anybody here, okay? Uh, yeah, we got uh, Maria Mendernes and Christopher Walken. How could I forget Walken? I carried this watch on my ass for two years. Yeah, so anyways, Pulp Fiction, um, this pretty much, uh, Reservoir Dogs put Tarantino on the map, but this like solidified him as like this very popular genre director, just this kind of, not even genre, but just director in general. This is an anthology, right? All the stories kind of go together. We kind of follow, I think, three kind of stories here. We follow, of course... Uh, these two hitmen in Samuel Jackson, Jules, and uh, um, Vic Vega, 
or Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta. Vega is his brother in Reservoir Dogs, played by Michael Madsen. So basically what happens is these guys are hired to carry out, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a mur- they're supposed to kill some guys and bring somebody back uh, and, and whatnot. That's what their job is. It also follows the story of Bruce Willis, um, who it's the gold watch. And he is this boxer who kind of made a deal, but he goes back on his deal and he has to get out of there. Uh, yeah, there's that story. And then of course there is, what what would you call the third story here? There's, uh, there's of course the, whole opening and ending with Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth who are basically going to rob a cafe and then there is the story the date the long date with Vincent Vega and Uma Thurman so yeah this whole movie is about two and a half hours long all the characters kind of intermix uh I don't know which story I prefer I, I like how it just flows really well but this also Samuel Jackson had been acting for years before this he's in Goodfellas he's in Menace to Society he's in Jurassic Park I mean dude was around Death and Temptation, but this is the one that solidified him as the star that he is. Rightfully so. He's excellent in this movie. Um, the dialogue is great. Um, in the very beginning, it had been a long time since I watched Pulp Fiction, and I was sitting there, I was like, I don't know how I like a lot of this dialogue. Some of the stuff said is just, it's, it's obviously... A lot of people wouldn't even put dialogue in their movie like that nowadays, but Tarantino has like such a uh, a very you know prevalent kind of type of dialogue that harshness. Uh, there's a lot of characters that say racial slurs because you know a lot of them are you know bad people, scum of the earth kind of people. So in the very beginning, you kind of hear that stuff, um, and I was just like, oh shit, man! I, I took me back. I know Reservoir Dogs. I feel like it's it just feels a little bit more natural because the characters net are just actual criminals, like all of them. But in this one, I guess most of them are too. But as it goes on, you know, uh, I just was like, oh man, I remember why I love this movie. Um, John Travolta's great in here. Um, the stuff would, um, you know, of course. Uh, Uma Thurman, that whole scene is great. The thing about Tarantino's movies is the violence, the action, all that stuff is good, but a lot of times I just enjoy watching the characters have dates, having all the characters just kind of hanging out and talking. Um, his dialogue is definitely self-indulgent, but a lot of people really enjoy it. A lot of people love or hate it, right? A lot of people do not like it. Of course, the Royale with cheese, the whole metric system jokes, that stuff, you remember it, right? Um, I would say that uh, Walken's little speech in here is great, of course. Um Ving Rhames has some really great moments, too. I love Ving Rhames. And I guess my favorite story, just because I'm a fucking monster, is probably the gold watch with Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis was on top of the world in 1994. I uh, could do no harm. Um, Bruce Willis is one of my all-time favorite actors. I just That's why I stopped like watching a lot of his movies after a certain point, because obviously he had the degenerative brain disease we didn't know about and he just his movies his performances were not up to snuff the scripts were not up to snuff but when bruce willis was on early in his career man he was fucking on loved him in and die hard but hudson hawk was one that he i just loved him in that pulp fiction you know when bruce willis was in that movie in your movie at a certain time you know it was a sign of quality um fifth element was really fun uh 12 monkeys lots of you know so i mean like back then bruce willis was the shit and in this, he's the shit. He plays this boxer, man. He's great in it. And he goes back and he screws, uh, you know, uh, Ring Rames over. But they end up uh, having this amazing scene, um, this uh, uh, circumstances when they see each other on the street and end up in the horrible spot with these two kind of backwoods guys and Peter Green and Dwayne Whitaker. The thing about that is you just got to think this is like one of the most popular boxers and the one of the biggest crime bosses. And they're at the, uh, you know, the, they're in the clutches of these two fucking rapist guys. Um, but yeah, uh, Peter Green was always such a strange actor to me. The bad guy in the mask. He's in Clean Shaven, which is a really kind of disturbing uh, kind of a psychological horror film, I guess I'd say. Um, he's in a lot of films. He's a very bizarre actor. Dwayne Whitaker's been in a million things. Things. But overall, this movie is just really quotable. 
really entertaining. The needle drops are excellent. Um, and it's just, you see Tarantino all the way through all the stuff he's infatuated with. Uma Thurman has some great moments too. Uh, overall, this is a great movie. I really don't know what to say. I love how it flows together. I love how things pop back up. Uh, and you know, they do a lot of hints later on that you see why characters ended up the way they did, you know, at the end, Travolta's like, I got to take a shit. And you're like, Oh, well, his stomach was upset and he took a shit later and it cost him his fucking life. Stuff like that. But if you've never seen Pulp Fiction, I, I would just genuinely recommend this. This is very, very much a product of its time too. So maybe uh, if you don't like it, the first five minutes, just take some adjusting, get in your 94 mindset, get in your Tarantino crime mindset. And I think you will love it because there's a reason why it's one of the most beloved movies ever made. Um, love Pulp Fiction, love the cast in here. Uh, just really recommended. Check it out. Uh, good stuff uh, and, and lots of good special effects. I mean, violence and stuff when people get shot. It's not like an over. It's not as violent as something like Django Unchained or Inglorious Bastards, but it has its moments. Um, and I would recommend Pulp Fiction. Great stuff. All right, let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that jazz. First up, Ken Coakley. I have Arrow TV. They have the Coffin Joe movies uh, up to end of man. The rest will be added next month. I have the Coffin shaped DVD box set a long time ago, so I watched End of Man for the first time last week. I liked it a lot. I know he was thumbing his nose at religion, especially mine, Catholicism. I did laugh hysterically when raindrops keep falling on my head on pan flute was playing while he wandered the streets. I was also impressed with the use of colors. It looked like a little technicolor. It's also a change of pace in the first four films and that there was no gore at all. Perhaps Mohika had jumped on the hippie bandwagon and wanted to do a non-violent film with this new character as the lead. While the character was symbolic of Jesus, his clothes are similar to one of the Hindu gods, possibly Lord Krishna. I would agree, too, to a certain point. Regarding the comment about Synapse taking their time getting Trick or Treat or Deadly Spawn, Trick or Treat is on Screenbox and Deadly Spawn is on Shutter. Yeah, I mean, I have an import of Trick or Treat on Blu-ray, and I have the old Blu-ray and DVD from Synapse on Deadly Spawn. I'm not in a hard place to watch them, but those are movies that I would like to see nice, clean remasters done by Synapse. Lastly, I want to mention the passing of David Emge. He was not only great in Dawn of the Dead, but he was hilarious in the booby hatch in which he played an Italian immigrant who talked like Humphrey Bogart because he learned English from old films. R.I.P. Flyboy. R.I.P got to meet him he was very cool uh when i met him i remember talking to him and i said man my my college professor stuck up for dawn of the dead because this one guy in class was like no the living dead's the only one worth anything and my college professor said no dawn of the dead was a cultural phenomenon it was a good movie i remember him saying that nick Mule from belgium and uh david emge definitely liked that the college professor stuck up for dawn of the dead nick Mule from belgium how peculiar the innkeepers led me to reevaluate ty west's movies too after being disappointed with cabin fever too back then i didn't realize that the studio decided to edit mr west's work to improve it well they never learn his Western and Valley of Violence is quite good despite bombing at the box office. It invokes High Plains Drifter, of course, but the film can stand on its own. The acting is very solid, especially Ethan Hawke and James Ransom playing uh, of, off each other. That pair uh, equals dramatic gold, if you believe me, asked Scott Derrickson. If you don't believe me, ask Scott Derrickson. Here we go. Uh, questions. Did anything weird ever happen to you while staying in a hotel? I've never had anything happen to me except the hot water not working. Um, I mean, I almost got in a fight because one of my friends ran his mouth. This is at conventions, so I've been to Cinema Wasteland. Lots of weird shit happens at Cinema Wasteland, okay? Lots of crazy stuff, so I won't go into detail there. Oh, I can tell you the story that um, I was on uh, film filming, and, well, that night they basically were in Pennsylvania in the Poconos, and they said, well, you you and the, your friend got to go to this hotel for tomorrow we're going to shoot at. Here's, uh, here's the address. Drive to New Jersey, which is close to the the line so we're driving to new jersey at two o'clock three o'clock in the morning at pitch black poconos to new jersey we don't know where the fuck we are the the map this is before you know the phones were so prevalent with MapQuest. so they printed off directions or then they printed it work so they wrote them down they were all ass backwards didn't make any fucking sense we finally get to this hotel the owner is like huh and basically uh there's supposed to be a reserve room for us there is but we had to use one of our credit cards and put it on the hold whatever 
So this guy gets us their keys. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. He's running around crazily through the hallways, trying to find us a room, opening doors, seeing people in there, closing them because that's not the room. Doing Going through all this shit. Basically, we get in there. I shower immediately, flood the bathroom on accident, and then we just go to sleep. It was one of the weirdest times. Then we filmed a really weird scene with an American flag in the background where I'm buck naked getting tortured. Really weird fucking time. Um, that's the weirdest time and weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in a uh, hotel. Uh, two, Clint Eastwood directed and started a number of westerns, but which do you like best, his acting or his directing style? I mean, he's excellent and unforgiven, but his direction's even better. I can't pick. Um, I love Clint Eastwood. I'm, not, I, I'm just not going to pick on that. But the movies he stars in that he directs are usually better. Do you think films will ever become non-cynical again, or is it business doomed? I have no idea. I have no, I can't answer that. Who knows? Maybe we're all just too cynical. Very much enjoyed your latest horror in 81 episode. Yourself and Dustin get a five star, five gold stars for being entertaining and informative. Makes me want to watch an American World in London again. Take care. Till next week. Thank you. Mr. Ma- uh, Manson, 87, uh, 72. Sometimes I never hear, something I never hear anyone ever talk about is how Coffin Joe identified as Catholic. I really, uh, and I really see almost pro-religious elements in his films. What do you think when watching them? Um, well, he says so in a lot of the features that originally he was very Catholic. And there's a certain point in his life where he lost his faith. And you can kind of tell through the movies where it happens. I like a lot of movies directed by people that come from a religious background. Even if they lost their faith or they haven't lost their faith. like, But they have something to say about religion. Um, I like them from countries that are very predominantly Catholic usually. Like Spain or Italy or Brazil. Or one of those countries. Because I feel like what they have to say is more poignant, uh, more meaningful, more connected to religion it's more into their life and integrated while when americans do it they just take a lazy way out and just show a priest raping a kid not that it doesn't happen but just that it seems so jaded and cynical and in a way that seems disconnected like they're not really in it it's an outsider making a comment about something while when somebody like fulci makes a comment and don't torture a duckling or coffin joe makes a comment in his films it seems like an insider who knows or even michele Sawave in the church it's so funny when you watch the church because you're like oh so this whole slaughter of all these people is messed up oh they must have that's so wrongfully done then they end up being demons you're like wait what it's so crazy or even if you look at something like alicarda which condemns religion and catholicism in one breath but then shows you that you can be possessed in another so it's so bizarre and different and unique almost to the fact that sometimes censors would make them do it but in the reality a lot of times it's just that these people have something to say negative about their fate but they can never get away from it right it's 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 instilled in them and i think that that says a lot about fate and religion in a way more so than a lot of unreligious americans making movies that make fun of religion and 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 i don't have a problem with movies making fun of religion but i don't like when they're really half-assed and lame they need to have some finesse about it they need to Write what you know, right? And when people write stuff they don't know, it sure does fucking show. Um, so there we go. That's what I basically say about that. And I think that Coffin Joe has a lot to say about religion. Mohica does. And I think that his films say that. And I think it changes over time. Uh, Danimal, best reviewer ever. Thank you. Uh, Zappa says, who the hell was Coffin Joe? I better get on top of this. You better indeed. Uh, Scannington Gino, hey, Mr. Parker, I saw polyester in a theater with uh, Odorama back in 1981. That's awesome. Love it. Way up, dude. Mr. Parker rules. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. So basically, we have a little update, a little tiny update, just two movies. I should have some stuff next week. My vinegar syndrome order should be here. Maybe some other things. But uh, we're going to do from Massacre Video, 555 on Blu-ray. Kind of a classic SOV movie. Enjoyable from what I remember. Who knows? This is brand new HD Masters from the original one 
uh, one inch video master. There we go. We have some interviews here. I had this old DVD, but there we go. Special edition of five, five, five. And then we have Olaf Inbach, dark divorce, which I seen once it's gory, but the DVD or Blu-ray I had a DVD I had was really shitty quality. Like the audio was all off. And I think that happened with a lot of it, but finally we got a uh, brand new fully uncut and uncensored 1080p master. Uh, Olaf Inbach, Gore King here, German splatter Meister. So two from massacre video. I'm very happy with. So anyways, let's, uh, we're out of here. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching. And as always, have a good one. Hey.